I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, celebrated author and thinker, Azar Nafisi, author of the new book, Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. Azar, truly a pleasure to welcome you today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, You're very welcome. I want to ask from the outset so our viewers have a sense of what you mean, because definitions are so important in literature. When you implore us to read dangerously, what do you mean by reading dangerously? Well, reading without any presuppositions, reading not in order to confirm what you already know or what you want other people to know, but going into it the way Alice went into the wonderland, just out of curiosity, run after that white rabbit and jump down in the hole without asking what will the hole give me? The hole will open a new wonderland that you had not seen. So it is uncomfortable, it is disturbing because we are dealing not with things we know about, but with things that we don't know about. And that becomes reading dangerously. There is another aspect to it. Um, Fiction is about truth. And once you know truth, you can't remain silent. You have to do something about it. So in that manner, reading fiction, great fiction, becomes dangerous because you cannot remain silent. You are focused on the fact that we are reading dangerously in what you call troubled times. Uh, We're still in the midst of a pandemic, which is unprecedented, at least in the last century of human discourse and narrative. People wrote about it, but it wasn't happening in real life. And there there are two things happening simultaneously right now when it comes to the proliferation of literature, fiction and nonfiction. We have a climate in which people are incentivized to write for clicks, to write for amusement. Uh, And I'm wondering, first, in that climate, how you understand authoring when we are at risk of disinforming or misinforming people? Does that change at all how you evaluate this question of reading dangerously? Well, of course, you read dangerously, not just fiction, but also you go into nonfiction um, in that manner as well. Uh, I think the whole act of writing and reading is is an investigation. It is going into the world that you you want to find more about. And uh, so nonfiction also, uh, especially good nonfiction or great nonfiction, um, also demands that we read dangerously. Um, we exactly because of what you said that we are living at a time when lies are so prevalent we need the voice of uh, the truth. And one way of having that voice is through reading and writing. Reading and writing, now you are, we are all exposed to a world in which what is going to be pervasive or prolific is on the internet, online. Um, 
there are still readers of written prose and text, but we know that oftentimes what is online gets confused with what goes through an editorial process. When you think of free speech today, do you think of free speech in the same way you thought of it a decade ago or when you first immigrated to the US? Um, or do you think of, of free speech at all differently? Well, you know, these, these are the times when we're redefining everything almost, almost our existence is uh, uh, at stake. We are, we are redefining what it means to be a human, you know. So um, free speech also needs to be re-looked at, reviewed. And um, uh, there has to be only this exchange because what is happening with online right now, um, we don't have any real definitions for what free speech should be. Uh, we're talking about it and we're discussing it, but we don't as yet have it. There needs to be responsibility and accountability there on the, uh, on the internet as well. And that is something that uh, I don't see in so many ways that I hope uh, we will be discussing and talking about it and doing something about it. Azar, you discuss resistance authors who shine a light, illuminate injustice uh, as it is in the present of their lives or as it could be in the case of someone like Margaret Atwood. Um, I think about your book in the context of the movement in this country to try to suppress speech um, that specifically in, in the context of today is speech about the history of racism or other forms of bigotry in America. Uh, how much of that was on your mind or is on your mind now? This is a time of transition. So on one hand, we have the legacy of the civil rights movement and other movements for uh, rights and freedoms uh, that has come to fruition in many ways. And uh, on the other hand, um, everything can go either way. I mean, uh, also at this point, exactly because of the victory of that movement, of the civil rights movement, uh, we now have a segment of society being scared that they are losing their place, that they are losing power. So they attack, so racism uh, and uh, other forms of prejudice have come, have uh, surfaced one more time. They are also uh, going to the extreme, not out of, strength, not because they think they have the power, but out of weakness and fear, because they think they're losing power. And that is why you see so much viciousness going on, because of that fear. Azar, how do you deal with that fear? You say fundamentally, the desire to suppress speech, whether it was in Iran when you taught there and, and were an author there or now in the US that fundamentally this is about fear. Um, what do you do about that fear? Well, um, one reason I wrote the, this book was to discover what do, you, what do I do about this fear? 
Um, and all of the writers that I talk about, uh, they believe in not judgment, but understanding. And sometimes it's easy to fall into the trap of a totalitarian mindset and act like them. I think the first thing we need to do is not act like them. And there is a segment of society that does respond to them in kind. Uh, that um, if they cancel, then they cancel as well. Uh, if they uh, use violent rhetoric, they use a kind of rhetoric that uh, there is no, that leaves no room for discourse. We should be what we claim we want to be. We want a society that is based on justice, that is tolerant, and that is um, uh, dynamic, that is constantly changing and accepts change. So we have to understand that politics alone cannot bring about this change because what we're fighting against is a mindset. It's a totalitarian mindset. And you fight it with something that is completely different from that mindset. If that mindset monopolizes everyone, it wants to have ownership of your soul and heart and mind, you go to the other place, which is why fiction becomes so important because fiction by structure is democratic. It is multivocal. It allows every voice, including that of the villain to speak. So it, a, a bad writer is one that imposes his voice, his message on all characters. But here, fiction liberates characters, allows them to um, exchange a dialogue with other characters and with the world around them. And that is the other thing about fiction, which goes exactly opposite the totalitarian mindset, is its acceptance of the other. Others become very focal and very important because you're writing for those others that you don't know, and you read those others that you don't know. So here, we need to have a democratic mindset that accepts others, that is universal, that is empathetic and curious. Um, by the way, I always remember Vladimir Nabokov saying, curiosity is um, uh, in subordination in its purest form. So just by being curious, you come out of yourself. You question not just the world, but your own self. And that is partly what we should do, at least in regards to reading and writing. Azar, that's really amazing. Um, you take my breath away in, in your pen and in your oratory. I hope you heard that because I know our connection was failing earlier. I, I couldn't help but hear it. I'm okay. all ears. Thank you. Uh, and, and you identify that the novel is ultimately democracy. It is the ultimate form of, of democratic governance, if you will, or democratic participation, uh, which I find really fascinating. Um, Beyond that, you said the key is understanding. And if you are chronicling as a 
nonfiction author and speaking truth assertively, you seem to highlight the importance of doing so empathetically and that you can assort you can assert a moral authority empathetically. And I think that is what is so lost in the public sphere today. Yeah, and, and that is why, I mean, the novel focuses on the individual. And usually it is the plot circles around that individual or those individuals' uh, uh, freedom of choice. Uh, now, that is exactly opposite what a totalitarian mindset does because it generalizes everything. And it also um, manufactures, by manufacturing lies, it manufactures enemies. It can't live without an enemy. Um, you remember uh, the former president uh, saying that uh, the press are enemy of the people. Uh, that is uh, a line out of Stalin's playbook, you know, uh, enemy of the people. So what we need to do with fiction is uh, to understand that imaginative knowledge is not something that you have now and then you have an iPhone and you don't read stories anymore, you go after your iPhone or, or whatever, uh, or the games uh, in the internet. Imaginative knowledge is a way of perceiving the world, relating to the world and changing the world. Nothing can replace it. It can change form uh, at different times, but it simply cannot be replaced. We've had stories since the dawn of mankind and we will have stories until the robots take over. <laughs> and at that point, if and when the robots do take over and rest assured they are beginning to take over, we risk losing story. I think that's what you're saying too. Yeah, we risk losing stories and uh, we are, I mean, it is through stories that we comprehend others because we put ourselves in their place. Um, the shock of recognition, um, it is not just that we're different, the shock of recognition is how alike we are as human beings. And totalitarian mindset tries to dehumanize us. It takes away from us curiosity and empathy because everything is already uh, prepared for you. There are formulas according to which you have to shape your life. And um, uh, when, when I talk about it in the Salman Rushdie and Plato chapter, I talk about it that the world of the philosopher king is very orderly and hierarchical. We have the noble lie. The, the world of the poet is anarchic and ambiguous and contradictory and full of conflict, full of different voices. And uh, we have to decide which one we choose, what kind of a world we want to live in, because totalitarianism also has its perks. It's so comfortable. Somebody else will decide for you what you do. And you just uh, belong always to the white hats and um, do as you're told. We don't want to forecast uh, a dystopian era. We're talking about the importance of human autonomy and mobility. And like you said, that producing a kind of imaginative knowledge. But what 
What do you do about the predicament of conflating fiction and nonfiction? Because what's, what's happening now in the discourse around free speech is folks who are in this pandemic anti-vax are arguing that it is you know, their right and their autonomy editorially or otherwise to proliferate that. Uh, meanwhile, people who are concerned about the banning of, of the teaching of racism or the teaching of bigotry uh, are saying, you can't um, restrict that. Uh, we have to have syllabi that invite all knowledge, including the, the deepest and darkest and most egregious uh, genocides that, that men and women are responsible for. So how do you deal with this conflation where on the one hand, you have very high profile politicians and media personalities saying that we should have a universe of, of so-called knowledge um, um, that, is, that is fictional, in fact, when it is being pervaded when it is being consumed, it is it is actually being identified as nonfiction. Well, uh, was your question that uh... just to to put it very bluntly, if you're truly being purist about free speech, you should enable people to you know, openly teach uh, the argument for and against vaccination. Um, yeah, and and yet. The scientific reality of doing that is that a lot of people, a lot more people are going to die. Um, yeah. And you, so you have what's going on now is a kind of conflation of fiction and nonfiction in how we discuss certain topics. And I'm just wondering, again, if you're a purist, if you're absolutist about it, you say, you know, we, we have to have a public square where you can make an argument for and against, um, even if your argument for, against, for or against is is uh, injurious to the public health. And again, I, I'm wondering your reflections on this kind of ongoing conflation. It's of, of uh, fiction and nonfiction. You talk about imaginative knowledge, right? But imaginative yeah. knowledge is when fiction leads you to truth. And I don't know what you consider our current situation where you have sort of... <laughs> Um, fiction leading us still to fiction. <laughs> yeah, that, that is why um, I, I was talking about this being a transition period where everything is going to be revised and reviewed and redefined, hopefully um, in the direction of a more democratic society rather than not. Uh, uh, and um, I do see the dilemma that you're talking about. Um, uh, those Talking about freedom and freedom of speech, uh, I guess um, we also need to look at uh, our responsibility when we use rhetoric, uh, because rhetoric can lead to action. So for example, some say, those who say we don't wear the mask because we, are, uh, we want to be free, uh, where does that freedom stop? if somebody else might die because you want to be free. Uh, so I think that these are the questions that are ongoing forever and ever. Right, and somebody may die as a result of not teaching about Jim Crow, not teaching yeah. about the trials and tribulations of abolitionists. I mean, so 
it's again a real catch 22 a predicament in in we you know i think that that again the purists are making the argument that you know made the best argument win you know the that sunlight is the best disinfectant and i know that you and salman rushdie yeah. and others that we've hosted here on the open mind often make that argument we need an open discourse and open dialogue but what happens when your nonfiction, when your truth uh, uh, leads to um, real damage uh, and the erosion of, of health or civil society. Um, but, but Azir, where do you, um, Azar, where do you fall in this debate in terms of, you know, making speech into some kind of absolute question of, you know, we need to have people who are arguing you know, for and against something, even when one of those arguments might be clearly wrong. That is why uh, education becomes so important uh, because um, uh, education, if it is good, and right now education in the United States is in a very sorry state, uh, um, it will, uh, give us the weapons with which we can uh, have our cake and eat it too, uh, to have our freedom of speech without, uh, uh, but knowing where we are responsible, knowing that it cannot uh, just be uh, free for all. Uh, so uh, I think that that is, uh, in schools, the good thing about it is that uh, you can argue both sides uh, within a context that uh, is not making policies or anything. It is just disseminating knowledge. And I guess there is a difference between those who are um, making the argument for free speech based on facts and those who don't, uh, or uh, at least uh, right now, that is how I see it. Let me ask you, I'm always interested, Azar, in the comparative analysis. When you look at that comparison of, of suppression in the US versus suppression in Iran, what do you, what, you know, where do you fall on, and you know, where, what are you thinking about in that comparison? Well, I mean, Iran is a totalitarian society, definitely. And uh, um, if the talk of free speech over there is moot because you get killed for it. You, be, you get jailed and were censored, jailed, tortured, and even killed. So many of our uh, writers and translators and journalists have already been killed and so many of them are in jails. Uh, uh, so I do understand that U.S. is not uh, Iran, that uh, I can speak to you freely about everything and, and criticize the system. But what I have been seeing since I came to U.S. is these trends that are totalitarian trends that are dangerous and they have been there for a long time and uh, books become like canaries in the mine. Uh, they become indicators of where we're going. 
And so uh, when I came to this country, I realized that there is another weapon against knowledge that is being used so effectively, and that is indifference. This, uh, this society has become uh, indifferent towards knowledge, towards reading, towards writing. And uh, that is as bad as is censorship. They both go to the same place. They both make you not read. And uh, so uh, while I never say that United States is Iran, I do say and see many trends. And I think it's a mistake to think that it won't happen here. Uh, when you think it won't happen here, maybe it's already beginning to happen. Azar, thank you so much for your eloquence. Thank you so much. presentation and the thoughtfulness with which you leave us today. I know our audience I'm, greatly appreciates it. I'm now gonna go home and think about your questions. That's really, <laughs> no, the, thank you thank for you, that. Thank you. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.